It's hot in these mountains. The middle and last part of June were gorgeous. Temperate days, cool nights in the 50s, and low humidity. But it's turned hot, upper 80s, 90s, and humid. Well, not so hot if you live in the San Joaquin Valley of California, but it's hot for us. My garden is starting to produce. Do you eat much bok choy? I plant eh, quite a bit of it. The seeds germinate easily. You can put it in the ground early in the season. It tolerates cold. Those spring cold spells don't bother it. And it's filled with nutritional compounds. And it's pretty and it's tasty. Now, one thing about bok choy. When it's ready, you better eat it. And it grows quickly. And uh, the whole bunch of them mature pretty much at the same time. I give away as much as I can. Some of our friends love it and could eat it every day. I like those guys. Some don't like it, but don't want to say they don't. And that's okay. The squash is just starting to come. Soon we'll be eating it all the time. Crookneck squash, yellow zucchini squash, and then Japanese eggplants. I think with tomatoes, they're my favorite summer food. Hello, listeners. This is Ernie Johnson, founder of Anashira. What is Anashira? Well, we make handcrafted goat milk soaps, all natural. I milk my goats myself. I feed them twice a day. I talk to them about anything I wish. I pull off branches of leaves from the big lilac bushes that grow next to one of their pastures, and I feed those leaves to them as a treat as I'm walking by. They love those leaves. They also love bok choy. The chickens, boy, they love bok choy. The other day, I threw a whole bok choy plant into their compound, and they were like, what's a gimmick? You never give us a whole one of these. Come on, master, what's going on? So, happy goats give delicious milk, which makes pure soap. Stay with me as I share with you my next story from Anashira. This may be a bit of a memory test for you. It was several months ago, I related to you in several episodes how Dawn and I had gone to France to stay in a house across the Rhone River from Avignon. Our idea was just to spend time living in Provence. We'd work on our French, try to live as natives of Provence would, and we'd train on our bikes every day in preparation for following the last week of the Tour de France as it finished the last stages in the Alps, before finishing on the Champs-Élysées. A guy named Jerry owned the house we rented. He had dual citizenship, French and American, and had led quite a life, and was still living one. For every story I had, he had two. The three of us had a lot in common and became friends. Before we left to follow the last week of the tour, Jerry had invited us to stay on, after the end of the race. You won't be my tenants, you'll be my guests. So Don and I boarded the TGV, 
that high-speed French train, and headed to Lyon, where we were to meet with about 20, 25 other people. There were cyclists, all Americans, and we get picked up by the tour organizers at the airport in Lyon. So we caught a bus from the Lyon Pardieu train station to the airport. We got there early. We didn't want to miss the bus. Well, there was no tour company representative, no message left for us. We noticed other people with large cases, bicycle cases. They were part of the tour. They're milling around. None of us knew what was going on, where anybody was. It was a couple of hours later when some people show up, a bus with a big trailer for our bicycles and equipment. Nobody was happy. We got no apology, no explanation. The organizer wasn't even there. This really set the tone for the next seven days. I'll explain something. This was not a budget tour, staying in youth hostels and eating sandwiches. I'd figured that since Dawn had given up the life, the life she loved in Fort Lauderdale and got rid of almost everything she owned, clothes, shoes, books, furniture, to live with me on the road in a 25-foot travel trailer, I'd reward her with a really nice tour, a nice time in France. It was supposed to be first class, four and five star hotels, first class restaurants, excellent organization so we could ride the routes of the tour in the mornings before the race and then watch the race from key positions in the afternoons. Sounds great, right? It went okay after the long wait. The bus took us to a very nice hotel in a place called Faverge de la Tour. First thing we did was put our bikes together in preparation for the extremely difficult ride the next morning. Dinner was pretty good. One issue, the people were different, not the kind of people we'd hang out with. We sat in a group in the restaurant at a number of tables. It was an elegant place. Many of those people acted as if they were in a Chili's restaurant. They were loud, somewhat obnoxious, and impatient. Oh my. Now, I've ridden my bike with a lot of different people in my life. On different teams in a number of different places. But those people were mostly polite, considerate, at least when they were off of their bikes. Dawn said, Ernie, don't let it get to you. Every one of them is tired. They're jet lagged. It'll be better. Yeah, she's always positive, that woman. So we went to bed and got up early the next day. It was a ride Don had been preparing for, without knowing it, for six years. We were going to climb the iconic Alpe d'Huez. A couple of notes on this climb. It starts in a little town called Bourg d'Oison and climbs up 21 switchback turns to a ski resort. The route is not used every year in the Tour de France, but when it is, it is special. It starts out in an elevation of uh, 2,300 feet and climbs 9 miles. The average gradient is 8%, and the maximum is 14%. Now, go out and find a road that has a 14% gradient and walk up it. That is steep. To set the tone even more, 
When this route is used on the tour, spectators arrive days early to grab a spot. The road is a tiny two-lane road built only to take vehicles up to the ski resort and back. Small campers and RVs are parked in every possible spot along these nine miles. It is commonly said that a million people line the route. It's probably an exaggeration. Maybe 500 to 750,000 people. That's still quite a bit. Many of these are in place at least five days before the race. They have to be because a couple days before the race, there's no room anywhere. So this mountain is one big party. People drinking, eating, yelling, music, blasting along the route. They're dancing the conga line. And here's why we were there. The day before the actual race, thousands of cyclists climb this route. Very little vehicular traffic. There's an excitement that you won't see anywhere else. Dawn really didn't sleep Monday night. She'd been telling me for years, I I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. Yeah, you can. I know you. I know you can. I'm not as strong as you think. You'll be fine. We had breakfast that morning, packed our suitcases, took them down. The bus took us to a spot on the Romanche River, maybe six miles before the start of the climb. A couple of women had invited Dawn to ride with them. But they were slow to get ready. They didn't even show up when they said they would. It was raining lightly. It was cool. Dawn said, let's just go. I can't wait for them. I just want to get this done. I'd volunteered to ride with her the whole way. But she said, no, I want to do it alone. You'll just make me nervous. Okay. So we rode into the town where the race was to start. Rode through the town. And I left on the road approaching the start of the steep climb just before the first uh, switchback. She didn't look happy, but she was determined. I felt bad leaving her. I had time to ride back to the river, and then I rode towards the uh, Col de Lotore, and I rode up that alone. It was a long ride, hard ride. I'd climb that mountain, then come back down, to Bourgeoisin, and then climb the Alpe d'Huez myself. So I got over the river, through the town, and rode up to the first hairpin, number 21. Each one is numbered, down to number one, the last one. It was already crazy. A long line of cyclists, like me. Some worse riders, many of them faster and younger. And a wall of people and noise and cars, and buses going up and down, and motorcycles. And I was already tired, but also exhilarated. I stood on the pedals much of the way. It was that steep. It was so steep that if you stopped, you had a devil of a time getting back on the bike and getting going. There was a long stream of riders heading up the mountain. Crowds everywhere, people drinking, dancing, getting in the way, blocking the road, trying to push us, talking to me, whistling, and vehicles still all over the place. 
at several points, there was a complete jam up. Two or three vehicles nose to nose surrounded by people and cyclists, impossible to ride. I put my bike on my shoulder and pushed my way through. Sorry, sorry, permiso, mi scusi. And at each switchback, I checked the sign number, 18. I checked for Dawn, hoping that I wouldn't see her on the side of the road. No, not here. Number 16. Man, even more people. No one said it would be this wild. And then, all of a sudden, there'd be a section with no crowds. Nobody screaming. You can hear birds and the wind and just a stream of cyclists. You can hear their gears going, heading up the road. You hear heavy breathing. All of a sudden, I hear music in the distance ahead. Screaming, then singing. I know where I am. I'm approaching corner seven. It's known to everyone as Dutch Corner. Thousands and thousands of fans. Many who have been camping here and drinking for up to a week. They pack the street. They pack the shoulder. Everywhere. Singing. Yeah, you know, I've said this several times, but i that's all you see on this mountain going up. Dutch riders have won more stages of Up Duez than any other nationality. And these people are all in orange. Dutch Corner. I really want to stop, have a beer, make some new pals, have a sausage. But I'm on my bike after several hundred yards. I can't stop now. The tour company has rented a villa on the route. Just near the end of the, of the route, they have food and drinks. And I ride past it, and there's Dawn. She's waiting for me. She's got a huge smile on her face. I ride past I'm going to ride on up to the finish line, Dawn. I'll come back. I did it. I did it, she screamed. She's so excited. The road here is not as steep. The crowd is not as wild. And I make it to tomorrow's finish line. I stop. I close my eyes. I reflect for a moment. Then I ride back down to meet Dawn. So they have food, wine, beers. A few people are hanging around. But we can't relax. We have to turn around and ride down the mountain, back to the bus. And Dawn has been worried about this challenge for months. What if I lose control? Have a flat. Fly off the mountain. You'll be fine. We get on our bikes and we get ready to head down. Now, just follow my wheel. Match my pace. Do not ride the brakes too much. The pads and the wheels will overheat and your tire will come unglued. Then you'll crash. Oops, probably shouldn't have said that. Pulse your brakes. Remember, focus on relaxing. Relax your neck, your shoulders, your hands. Okay, here we go. So I described how steep it was going up. Going down seems twice as steep. If you were to just let your bike go and not hit the brakes, I swear within 10 seconds, you'd be going 60 miles an hour. You can't do that. So we went through the craziness all the way through on the way down, what we'd gone through coming up. I was exhilarated. Dawn was terrified. My legs were spent. My fingers numb on the brake handles. I turned around often. You okay? I'm alive. Just don't stop. We made it down in one piece to Bourgdoison. We turned right and headed up along the river. An easy pace. It was about five o'clock and it turned chilly. We got to the bus, took our bikes to the trailer, 
It was supposed to leave at 5.30 to get us to our hotel. Well, 5.30 came and nothing. No one said anything. 20 minutes later, I walked up the front to a staff member. What's up? Uh, We're waiting for four people. We can't leave without them. Where are they? We don't know. How long will we wait until they come? Huh? We were all upset. We were tired, dirty, thirsty, hungry, and we were responsible. We'd been on time, and we have to wait. It started to get dark. Almost two hours later, these guys roll up. They decided to climb another mountain, then ride back, and then up Alpatuez. No apology. No, hey, sorry, folks. It won't happen again. I went to the tour director later. He had no idea what he was doing. We can't just leave them on the side of the road, he said. You know, Dave, you leave them once, and it won't happen again. We finally got to the hotel, probably the best shower I've had in my life. We didn't get to dinner until after nine. I looked around, people were nodding off. Five courses and several glasses of wine and a big dessert. We finally made it back to our room and Dawn and I collapsed like the dead. The next day was the actual race up the Alpa. We had an early breakfast, the bus took off, went to the other side of the mountain and we stopped at a ski lift that took us all the way to the resort at the top. Very slick. And we had plenty of time to kill. Six hours until the race would come by. It was a time trial. The race against a clock. Or as they say, the race of truth. Riders would go up the mountain one by one. They'd leave at one minute intervals. The rider in last place would leave first, and the race leader would be the last one to leave the starting ramp. There would be two minutes separating the start of the last 10 riders, keep them a little bit more apart. We could see far down the road. We could see the church and the village of Wes. It was clear to us that was just this side of Dutch Corner. We knew the race had started. We heard a distant roar when the first rider hit the village. Then the sound followed him up as he hit crowds. It was like thunder. And that excitement was for the last man in the standings, Sebastian Jolie. He was already two hours and 59 minutes behind Lance, the leader. He was called the Lanterne Rouge, the Red Lantern. And it refers to the Red Lantern that hangs on the last car of a train. He's the last guy in the race. Now, Jolie got a roaring ovation. He'd never had one like it in his whole career, I'm sure. He went on to finish the tour in 146th place. He beat one person. We yelled as loud as everyone else for him. Then, rider after rider came by. About every minute for the next two and a half hours. Then we saw helicopters leaving the river, eight miles down. Television helicopters. We know what that meant. They followed the race leader, Lance Armstrong, our favorite. He'd started. We had defended Lance dozens of times when people realized we were Americans. He dopes, right? Or they'd make the image of a hand holding a syringe and the thumb pressing down. 
Armstrong, eh? But that is a long story for some other time. We still love Lance. Hey, he'd beaten cancer all over his body. Why would he ever freely put dangerous drugs in himself? So Dawn had a pair of binoculars and the start list of the riders in her hand. She looked down the road and called off the riders as she saw them. I see Carlos Sastre. Then that's, that's Vladimir Karpitz. No, wrong. It's Gernini. Then there's Jan Ulrich. He's flying. And so on. Copter's about 50 yards from us, straight in front of us at our height. We couldn't hear a thing except for its engine and the roaring of the crowd. We watched Ivan Basso, the great Italian, who was in second place. He went by below us. Lance was less than 50 feet behind him. Man, he'd made up a lot of distance. Then the helicopter was right over us. Lance catches Basso and passes him. It was less than 10 feet away from us. Impossible. How did he make up two minutes in under eight miles? We were physically and emotionally spent. We'd been up since five and walking and yelling most of the day, drinking wine. Dawn turns to me. Ernie, I'm so glad we don't have to ride down the mountain on our bicycles today. Boy, you're right about that, Dawn. You ever been to an NFL or a college football game when a stadium holding 100,000 people empties and everyone heads for one of eight or ten exits to the parking lots? Huh. So imagine close to a million people heading down one thin, barely two-lane road, blocked in places by groups of fans who'd been celebrating for five days. It was an all-night adventure for many. Luckily for us, our tour organizer had done another thing right. He'd hired a helicopter to ferry us off the mountain, three at a time. There was a small runway on the edge of town. It went downhill about 150 meters and then ended in space, not for the faint of heart. So Dawn let me have the seat next to the pilot. We were the last group down. And this pilot was an odd-looking fellow and he flew like a peregrine falcon diving for a duck fast. We were surrounded by plexiglass windows. We could even see through the floor. When I yelled, oh my God, the pilot took that as a request for more hair-raising maneuvers. I snuck a look behind me at dawn. I couldn't tell whether the look on her face was a wide smile of delight or a grimace of terror. We did make it safely to the airport at Grenoble and had a long bus ride to the town of Megev. It had been exciting. We agreed some of the best 36 hours of our lives. We did have a great hotel room, and we're going to stay there for two nights. People, please don't get impatient. I know very few of you are fans of bicycle racing. Maybe more of you have some interest in the Tour de France, and probably a lot of you would like to go out of your way and hit a cyclist on the side of the road to teach him a lesson as you go by. But I only have one small anecdote more to relate. Saturday morning... We drove to Besançon to watch the penultimate stage of the tour. It was a time trial, 34 miles long. Don and I walked much of the course 
the start and finish lines. We watched the time carefully. The organizer had said, it's important to meet back at the bus by 6 p.m. sharp. We are driving to the TGV station, Gare-Besançon, about 15 miles away, to catch the TGV to Paris. The race ended about 5.15 and we hoofed it out of town. It was about a 35-minute walk to the bus. I'd paid attention on the way in. We ran into others from our tour group. Are we late? A woman asked. No, we're okay, but we can't mess around. Let's get going. We caught up with a couple more people. Come on, let's go, I said. We get to the parking lot. Uh, what the heck? I look up. I look over. No bus. No tour staff. No one. There were about 12 or 15 of us. Half of the whole group. I finally said, I'll go call the director. I have his phone number. None of us had cell phones, so I found a payphone, dialed the number. After about 10 rings, he picks up. Hello? David? Yes? This is Ernie. You know who I am? Yes. Where the hell are you? Uh, we're at the TGV station getting ready to leave. Where are you? Where am I? I'm here where the bus was supposed to be, you idiot. You left us here. Half of your tour group. Why did you leave us? Uh, there was an accident on the road to the train station. We had to leave. We'd miss a train. I was sputtering. You left us? You just left us here? And how are we supposed to get to Paris? It's 450 miles away, Dave. Here, talk to Maxime. He's making arrangements. With that, he was gone. The coward. I knew Maxime. He wasn't a bad guy. His English, though, was pitiful. Dites-moi, Maxime. So he said he was renting a bus to take us to Paris. It might take a while. He was so sorry. Yeah, so sorry. He was going to be on the train. You didn't leave anyone here to wait for us? What if no one had had Dave's number? Oh, forget it. Where's our bus? Send it back from the train station. Oh, it left this afternoon with the luggage for Paris? You keep this phone with you, Maxime. If I call... You answer it. You hear me? We miss you. I get back to the group and I give the news. They're sending a bus. It may take a while. It will take us back to Paris. How far is Paris? How long? Those guys had no idea where they were. They couldn't have picked Besançon out on a map if their life depended on it. It's over 400 kilometers away. I'd say four to five hours. Are you crazy? Four to five hours? Some guy yells. I turn to him. Hey, buddy, lighten up. I don't work for these idiots, and I certainly don't work for you. Hey, sorry, man. Really sorry. Without you, we'd be sitting on the curb. We appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, you got that right. So about an hour later, a big tour bus pulls up, stops near us. The driver gets off. I go over to him, puts his hand out. Monsieur Ernie, he asks. I know he was trying to say, Mr. Ernie. 
Oui, c'est moi. Je suis Gaspard. On va à Paris? Gaspar? I'm Gaspar. We're going to Paris. What kind of a name is that? Gaspar. I didn't even know there was such a name. So we piled on and Gaspar, the driver, off he headed. Turns out he spoke no English and no one on the bus spoke any French, really. So I was Mr. Communication. He had questions. You are all American? Oui. Why were you all sitting in a parking lot? No luggage. Going to Paris. Oh, Gaspar, I can't begin to tell you how we got here. So he stops on the way. We eat dinner. Got some bottles of wine, some water, some beers for the road. Don and I are sitting up in front across from him. I fall asleep after a while, and I wake up to Don shaking me. Ernie, Gaspar needs you. What time is it? Uh, it's after midnight. I look over, Gaspar. Monsieur Ani, he says, we're on the edge of Paris, heading to the 7th arrondissement. Did I know a hotel called the Grand Hotel L'Eveque? Uh, no. The two of us look at a map of Paris and we find it. It takes a while to get there, even with such little traffic on a, early on a Sunday morning. I call Dave's number on the way. Maxime answers. Allô? Maxime, we're almost there. I want you and Dave to be on the street to meet us. You will have our room keys with you. You're going to hand them to each of us. We will not go to check-in and waste any time doing that. Tell David not to speak. You don't speak, David. We don't want to hear you. I just want every one of us to see what a sorry sack of bones it was who left all his customers on the side of the road. Tell him if he isn't there, all 15 of us We'll walk through the hotel screaming and find his room. Okay. We park in front of the hotel. The duty manager is there. Maxime is with him with a box of keys. I look further. Oh, yeah, in the back next to a planner is that spineless David looking at the ground. He doesn't glance over, doesn't attempt to apologize, and I don't want him to. I don't want to hear him. When everyone is set and off to their rooms, I walk over to Gaspar. Hey, Gaspar, thank you. You saved us. He walks over to me. No, Monsieur Annie. Merci beaucoup à vous. He actually gives me a French hug. Well, you know, we actually rode every day and we watched the rest of the stages, including the finishing stage in Paris on the Champs-Élysées. But that's all pretty anticlimactic after our adventure in Alpa d'Huez. These are indeed strange times. The pandemic is testing us all. If it hasn't got to you yet, I suspect it may eventually. For the past 32 years on the first Saturday of July, I've always paid attention to the start of the Tour de France. I look forward to it and then spent much of my free time following each of the 21 stages closely. This year, nothing. No races leading up to it for the riders to hone their skills. 
No debates on who's to be the leader of the biggest teams. No Dutch people camped out for days on the side of the road. Really, no sports of any kind. Well, some golfers playing alone at the Detroit Golf Club. No fans. Almost no international players they can't get in. If they could, they probably don't want to be here with this pandemic taking over. There is one way to escape all this. I do it every day. Turn on your shower. Jump in, grab a bar of Anashira soap and lather up. Be present. Shut off your mind. Don't let your mind take over and worry. Be in the here and now. I was so happy yesterday. I'd made a new batch of deep forest soap with a slightly modified formula. The four-week curing period was over. I tried the first bar. It was great, smooth, luxurious. Now, my skin isn't the smoothest on any person in these mountains, but it felt great after that shower. So go to our website, anashira.com, and enter discount code anashira12 at checkout. It will give you a 12% discount, and that's going to be good through the end of August. While you're on the site, order enough for your whole family and a couple of friends. Any orders over $50 get free shipping. You'll make yourself and your family happy. I was talking to my daughter, Liana, this week, and she said, Dad, stop reading so much news on your iPhone. It's not good for your spirit. She was right. I give you the same thought. Cut down on your time online. Read less news. Go out for a walk. Listen to great music. Put on a mask. Wash your hands regularly. Thanks for listening. Join me in a couple of weeks for the next episode of my Stories from Anashira. Stories from Anashira.